We're reading this morning from Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. This is God's Word. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, as we gather before your word this morning, we ask that your spirit would be present and that you would speak, for your servants are here to listen. Amen. In the fall of 2008, it was Thanksgiving weekend, and Melissa and I had visited my family and were driving north on I-395, north of Fredericksburg, Virginia, 95 is a crazy experience, especially on Thanksgiving weekend. We had the family van, and I was driving at a high rate of speed along with the flow of traffic so as not to get run over. And I was in what was known as the HOV lanes, or you can also call them the suicide lanes. At certain times of the day, it flows north, and certain times, it flows south. It was flowing north, fortunately, so I was going the right direction. But there's no margin. Concrete walls on both sides. Our family van was showing some signs of age at this point, and traveling at those high rates of speed, some lights began to blink and flash. And uh, so first I noticed the, the battery light was flashing. I'd never seen a battery light flash. Your battery's either working or it's not. And then I noticed the temperature began to rise rather quickly. And then suddenly the speed in the car just drastically reduced. And I lost power steering. And I'm trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> Melissa's panicking. The kids are kind of looking around, asking questions, and there was nowhere to get off. There's no way out of the suicide lanes, and we're committed 25 miles from home trying to figure out what to do. So eventually I found a small place to turn off. We got off the highway, and I pulled into an auto parts store. And I noticed that, you know, well, my power steering is out, and my engine is overheating, so what did I need? Power steering fluid and engine coolant. So I let the car sit for a minute, and then I went about getting my power steering fluid and my engine coolant, and I poured them in. We got a snack and hung out for about 30 minutes and then went to get back on the road. We made it one exit before the car basically died, sputtered, died, would not go anymore. Had to call USAA, had to have them come tow the car, take it into the shop, and discovered that the drive belt had broken. And that when the drive belt breaks, all kind of manner of other things go wrong in your car. And so what I was seeing was very typical because the fan stopped working and that engine was no longer being cooled by the fan. And that's why we were overheating. It wasn't a coolant issue. 
And then the battery and lights and electrical system was just going crazy with all the heat. And so I was seeing all these symptoms of something being profoundly wrong in my engine. And I was trying to treat those symptoms, not understanding the deeper, more profound problem that was crippling our family van and imperiling our lives in the suicide lanes of I-395. And friends, the thing is, is that in the church, we can oftentimes suffer from the same problems because we'll see symptoms of something being wrong. It may be spiritual complacency inside of a congregation. It may be some bitterness and backbiting going on. It may be a lack of young people. It manifests in all kinds of different ways. And what we tend to do as communities when we see those symptoms is we try to get out the coolant and we try to get out the power steering fluid and we want to pour it in because we want to treat the symptom. Paul was dealing with a very similar situation in Philippians, in Philippi. He writes a letter to a church that he really loves, and he wasn't going to let them get away with just treating the symptoms, the things that they could do to address some problems that were cropping up. Because though he loved this church, there were some serious, deep challenges. There was some division in the church. There was a lack of unity of heart and mind. They were no longer sharing in the gospel, participating in the grace of God the way that they once had. And in this short letter, Paul uses the word gospel nine times at very key moments. And it's so important for us. Because when a church is experiencing problems, what we learn from Paul is that the key issue is not just its programs and what's going on. It's not just pouring in the coolant, pouring in the power steering fluid. It's addressing the drive belt. And friends, the drive belt of the church is the gospel. And it's ensuring that that gospel is lying at the center of our community that must be what we urgently always try to do. And in verses 3 through 11, Paul is praying for this church. He's praying that the gospel would be at its center and at its core, and he's speaking about what it looks like when the gospel is planted at the very center of a church's life. He's addressing some things that are wrong. He's also giving them some encouragement about things that are right. And so it's a simple question for us this morning, is that when a community is centered on the gospel, what does it look like? What does it look like when the gospel is really at the heart of who we are, not just intellectually, but when it has our hearts and our affections? In verses 3 through 5, we find the answer. Paul says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And it is this phrase partnership in the gospel. The word for partnership is the most overused Christian term that I know. It is the Greek word that almost every evangelical Christian in America knows, koinonia. Even though it gets overused, it's a profound term. It's extremely rich. And when we see that phrase, partnership in the gospel, what we're reading is that this isn't just a social relationship. It is that. 
It has a component of relationships within the church. But it's more than that. That when Paul uses this term partnership, he's also speaking of our relationship to those in the outside world. And yet when he refers to partnership in the gospel, we'll see also that he's referring to our relationship to God. That it's all-encompassing. And that when a community is centered on the gospel, we become partners in the gospel. We become common in the gospel. And we traffic in these three areas. Our relationship with one another, our relationship with the world, and our relationship with God. And that we can't separate those three things. And so how does that partnership flesh itself out? That's the burden that we, that's the thing we must understand. It's the burden that we accept. We want to know how this partnership looks. And there's three things that we find in these verses about how this partnership fleshes itself out. And first, we share in a salvation not of our own making. Look what Paul says in verse 6. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That if we're partnered in the gospel, it's not because we are good. It's not because we have been qualified. Rather, it's because God's good work has begun in our lives at his own initiation. God begins the work. God sets us apart. God justifies us, makes us right with himself through Jesus. And Paul sees that we are participating in a relationship with God only because of the grace of God, only because of his mercy. It's God who's working in us. So salvation undeserved has nothing to do with our own making. And then he introduces this idea, though, that God has begun this work and God will one day bring it to completion. That yes, we have been saved and that in ways we are being saved and then there is this component of we will be saved when God raises us from the dead. That he's working this out. But I know for many people, the process feels very slow. That we believe that God perhaps began a work in us, but as we muddle through life, sometimes it becomes very convoluted. We become concerned about ourselves. As a church planter, we rented space from another church. And the church was an older church, and the building had fallen to some disrepair, and so we were able to get a deal on our rent because of that. But with the infusion of uh, the church I was pastoring, with the infusion of that money, there began to be signs posted around the church building. And they were pictures. And one of those pictures was put on the men's bathroom in the downstairs basement. And it said, excuse our dated appearance, renovations coming soon. And there was a nice picture of a gleaming white bathroom. Now, you've never been to this building, so you don't quite know what was behind that door. But it was the scariest bathroom in all creation. I wouldn't even go in there, and I've got a pretty high pain tolerance for such things. It was so crazy in there. 
It was built in the 20s, and it was just decrepit, and yeah, you didn't want to go there. And so when we first saw the sign, it was awesome. Oh, wow, it would be nice to have a functional men's bathroom in the building, a place where children could go in and not run out screaming, you know? And, uh, and so this sign sat there, and one year passed, and we thought, well, maybe it's in their next year budget plan. Maybe the deacons got a little um, uh, tight with the money. <laughs> so maybe it'll be happening this next year. Two years passed, three years passed, Four years passed, the sign is still sitting there, and it became a joke. There was active cynicism amongst me and my friends about the men's downstairs bathroom. Please excuse our dated appearance. And then one day I walked into work, and my office was actually very close to that downstairs bathroom. And as I came down the stairs, I noticed that the toilet had been removed from the bathroom, it was sitting in the stairwell. I didn't know what was really going on at first, and, um, <laughs> and then I noticed that uh, there was someone doing demolition. There was tile and dust flying everywhere. There was loud machinery, and it was the first sign of hope that we had ever seen. Please excuse our dated appearance. <laughs> Renovation coming soon. And that toilet was the first sign of life, that something was actually happening. <laughs> And friends, when it comes to our own growth in grace, we can feel like this. Please excuse the dated appearance. Renovation is underway. And we're really concerned whether the renovation is happening, that we're not really that sure. We're uncertain whether we've got what it takes. But the profundity of what Paul says is that our renovation is not up to us. That it is God's work. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That the progress of that work, that the completion of that work is not left in your hands. That it belongs to God, that he's the one who nurtures it. He's the one who cultivates it. He's the one who drives it forward. And so, friends, when we're doubting that renovation process that's at work in our lives, what we're ultimately doubting is the character of the one who makes the promise. When my friends and I were cynical about the sign on the bathroom, what we were ultimately saying is that the elders and the deacons of the church weren't going to make good on their pledge. And they came through. And that's what the gospel promises us as well that we are to trust that God is actively at work, that what he has begun, he will finish, that he will make good on his promise. And so we trust him. We're partners in that grace. We're participating in it. And many people would then ask the natural question, though. Well, how do I know? What are the signs of that? And I think Paul introduces us to something um, very interesting in this letter. He does it actually in all his letters. Look in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, for you all making my prayer with joy. Two themes here, thanksgiving and joy. Is renovation taking place in your life? At the very heart of Paul's understanding of spirituality is this theme of thanksgiving. 
And several years ago, someone, a friend, passed me a sermon, and it was on this topic of thanksgiving. And it was a time where I was struggling and really trying to discern what God was doing in my heart and in my life. I wasn't feeling incredibly thankful. In fact, I was incredibly cynical and just discouraged. This sermon about thanksgiving came at me like a train. I'm not even sure it was a good sermon, but it was that perfect timing. And so I began to do a study on thanksgiving, particularly in the Apostle Paul. So I went to what preachers do. I went to my big uh, dictionaries and looked up thanksgiving, began to flip through, and then I found this quote. It said, Paul mentions the subject of thanksgiving in his letters more often, line for line, than any other Hellenistic author, pagan or Christian. That seems significant. That Paul mentions thanksgiving in his letters more often, line for line, than any other Hellenistic author, pagan or Christian, that if I was going to understand Paul's spiritual life, there was something about thanksgiving that I had to get. That Paul was spontaneously giving thanks in the middle of letters like Romans where he just breaks out in chapter 7 and says, thanks be to God. That in Corinthians, he was giving thanks for people who were actually criticizing him. That this thanksgiving thing, this Eucharist, this offering of thanks to God was deeply in his heart. That it produced joy. And even when his circumstances were incredibly difficult. Remember, he's in prison when writing Philippians. And what is he doing? He's giving thanks. Friends, that's perhaps one of the first fruits of grace that begins to grow in our lives and that God nurtures and cultivates. That when He begins the work, that the gospel produces this thanksgiving. It produces this joy. Several years after that, after studying the topic of thanksgiving, I decided that I needed to do something with the fruit of my study. (laughs) That it wasn't just enough to know about thanksgiving. And so I set up a conversation with, uh, with my mentor, and he said to me, he said, well, you know, Chuck, what, who you really need to talk to is my wife, Sally. She's going to be, give you the best direction on this. So I sat down with Sally and was asking her, I said, Sally, you know, Thanksgiving, I see it in the Bible, that it's part of the life of one who has been saved, that it is the good work of God, it's the fruit of His Spirit, joy and thanksgiving, yet I find myself consistently struggling Can you tell me ways that you've cultivated thanksgiving in your life? Ways that you found to grow that? And she said, yeah, I've got one piece of advice for you. She said, pay attention. (laughs) Two-word answers are not my favorite. Sometimes they feel confining and they box you in. But it was so right. She went on to tell me a story, and she said, you know, Chuck, I find that God is at work all around in my life and in people around me, and that oftentimes I'm so busy and I'm so preoccupied with my own needs and my own concerns that I strangle thanksgiving. I strangle joy with my preoccupations. And it is looking at life as if God is actively giving every moment of it, and it's learning to give thanks And it was at that point that something clicked. Just in my own uh, prayer and devotional life, I have a habit of closing that time with, uh, with a certain prayer that was written by a Puritan. 
in the late 1500s. And the prayer has a line in it that reads like this, and give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts we may show forth your praise not only with our lips, but in our lives. That I had been asking God for years on a daily basis that he would give me an awareness of his mercies that I may show forth his praise not only with my lips, but with my whole entire life. And it clicked that I was needing to attend to life, to be aware of what was going on around me, to see God actively working in my life and the life of others, to see all that he graciously gave, and that this was a simple means for cultivating thanksgiving, recognizing all that I have was a gift of God. Because friends, this God who has begun a good work in you, he will complete it. And the fruit of that ongoing work is found deeply in thanksgiving and joy. And a church that is centered on the gospel, that's partnered in grace, is going to have this dynamic at its core. Joy and thanksgiving. We can't get around it. Now the second feature, as we're centered on the gospel, is we share in the advance of the gospel through word and deed. Look with me in verse 7. Paul says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now here, Paul has once again said that we are partakers of grace, but how are we partaking in that grace? Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And he seems to be speaking about two things, that the Philippians had sent gifts to Paul while he was imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. They had financially supported him. Now we know also in chapter 4 in verses 14 through 16 that they had sent him money many times when he was out on his preaching and missionary journeys. They had been active financial contributors. And we know that they were active in the gospel. As we saw last week in Acts 16, the church in Philippi begins with three conversions. A wealthy merchant woman named Lydia, a slave girl, and a suicidal Roman soldier. That's a church, an unlikely band of people bound together in the grace of God. They begin preaching the gospel in their city of Philippi, this Roman colony, and the church begins to grow. And when we're partnered in the gospel, when the gospel is at the center of our community, this is what happens. We begin to give. We begin to give generously. We begin to give lavishly that we become concerned with the welfare of others outside of our own family, outside of our own immediate circles of reference, that we begin to become concerned with the spiritual welfare of others, that we invest ourselves in their health, wanting to see them know this Lord Jesus. We become committed to the truth of the gospel going out into all the earth. That when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me, saying that the world is his, and we're simply going out as journalists, 
telling the world of its true king. And we do that in word and deed. When I was a young pastor in Memphis, remember I had a, a young guy come to me. He had just returned to town. He had grown up there. And uh, he came with a question. And he said, Chuck, I have to make a decision. It's a major financial decision. But a certain social organization has called me and asked me to join. He says it requires a lot of money, but they're giving me a deal. And I've got this major question as to whether I should join or not. I don't know what to do. As I was listening to his question, I realized that I didn't have an answer. I didn't quite know how to, how to speak to him. There was no opportunity for me to join the social club and organization. I hadn't been invited and wouldn't have had the, the resources to do it. And I didn't know how to give him really sound, godly advice. And so I told him, let me get back to you. So I called one of my mentors and I just asked, I said, what do you say? Tim, help me out. Help me understand how I lead and guide this young guy who's got a really big decision in front of him, a big financial one. And he said to me, he said, Chuck, perhaps don't focus on evaluating the institution, the social club he's talking about joining. But perhaps the question to ask him is what he desires his life to stand for. That when his checkbook is revealed at the end of his life, what was he invested in? That our heart is ultimately played out in places like our finances. It's played out in our actions. And asked him if he wants that social organization to be the biggest contribution that he makes in his life. And suddenly I found myself with something to talk with my friend about. Because it wasn't that I could tell him it was right or wrong for him to join this social organization. But it was deeply right for me to ask what he wanted his life to be known for and known by. And if he was to join, then don't let that be the biggest financial contribution he makes in his life. Because that's what he's going to be known for. But if the gospel is at the center of your life and you're wanting to be grounded in him, then have your priorities reflect that as well. And that's what Paul is saying for all of us, that we're partnered in grace. And we have the opportunity for the defense and the confirmation of the gospel to give of our whole lives, in our words and in our deeds, to the advance of God's mission in the world. We get caught up in something together. Not just something we do in, as individuals, but as a community embracing that. That's the second piece of what it looks like to be partnered in the gospel. And the third is that we share in a common way of life, namely love. Follow with me in verse 8. Excuse me, in verse 9. This is Paul's prayer for the community. We could spend six weeks on this prayer alone. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What's so fascinating about Paul's prayer 
is that he puts at the head of the fruit of righteousness and all the ways that righteousness works itself out in our lives. He puts at the head of that love. He says, may your love abound more and more. In other words, if we learn what it is to love in the gospel's definition and in the gospel's fashion, there will be patience. There will be self-control. There will be humility. There will be every manner of righteousness in our lives if we learn the gospel's manner of love. Augustine says it this way, is that love is the general of the army of virtues. Learn love and you get everything else. And this is Paul's prayer for the church centered on the gospel, that as we experience the love and the grace and the mercy of God, what it means to be served by God, that that translates into love in our own lives. This is what he says in chapter 2 when he confronts the church on being self-interested and selfishly ambitious. He calls us to the example of Jesus, and he says, have this same mind that was in Jesus in your own life. Lay down your own interest. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility of mind, count the interest of others more important than your own. We find it continually through the letter. Then in chapter 2, in verse 19 through 24, he gives them an example of someone who lives this way. He's speaking of Timothy. Follow with me there. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. You see how Timothy is living in the way of Jesus? That he's putting the interest of others ahead of his own? Paul says he has no one else like him. But Timothy is concerned for the welfare of others over his own welfare. And Paul is illustrating his prayer. May your love abound more and more. And friends, that's the vision for the church as a colony. The church sent as a colony into the world. That God's kingdom come, that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the way that that is brought about is through God's people learning to inhabit this way of selfish, unconcerned love laying down our lives for others, walking in the way of the cross, that this is the way of the kingdom. A couple of times a week, I try to go running. It is my time to decompress and de-stress. Oftentimes, I will just simply hit iTunes, put in some earphones, and tune out from the world. I, I get nearly run over a good number of times. And I was running along with my mind in many, many different places, and there was a song playing in the background, and I found myself just rocking along to the beat, not listening to the words. And then suddenly I clued into the words. I think it captures so much of our struggle with love. It's Philip Phillips, <laughs> the uh, winner of American Idol or one of those, so- one of those shows. Um, he says... I'll share in your suffering to make you well. Remarkable statement. Give me reasons to believe that you would do the same for me, and I would do it for you. 
He had a great start. And then this horribly mixed and confused and convoluted message at the tail end of it. That I would share in your sufferings, but you need to give me some reasons to believe that you're going to reciprocate. And friends, this is where I know as Christians that we just simply struggle. That we want to know that someone else is going to make good. That when we give ourselves in love and self-sacrifice, that there's going to be some reciprocity. It didn't go that way for Jesus. We can't expect it to go that way for us. That God doesn't ask what we will receive in return. He just simply asks that we abound more and more in love. That's what it means for us to be filled with the fruits of righteousness for the day of Christ. That's what our partnership is about. And so we can't be committed to missions around the world if we're not committed to love in this room. We can't be committed to knowing doctrine and theology if we're not committed to loving those around us. We can't be committed to mission unless, uh, without being committed to the grace of God that puts us in right relationship to him. That all these things belong together. That partnership in the gospel brings you into right relationship with one another. It puts you in relationship to the outside world and it puts you in relationship to God. That's what a gospel-centered church is. It's an awesome vision. And that's what God invites us into. Let's walk in that together. Let's not get concerned with the symptoms of all the stuff that can go wrong in church life. I want to address the drive belt. And the drive belt is the gospel and all that it can produce. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the gospel. We're grateful for the joy and the thanksgiving that it brings into our lives. We're grateful for the gifts of partnership in your grace that bring us into relationship with you, with one another, and with the world around us. And God, we ask that we would grow in all of these areas. And ultimately, may our love abound more and more as we learn to take up the way of life of our Lord Jesus, to put the interest of others ahead of our own. Give us your help. We need it. And complete the good work that you've started. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.